welcome to episode 74 of Late Night Linux, recorded on the 14th of October 2019. I'm Joe, and with me are Phelan. Good evening. Graham. Hello. And Will. Hello. And here we are on the day Her Majesty reopened Parliament. A great day. Um, later on, we're going to be having an interview, uh, but let's do a bit of news first. And uh, shocker, Adobe turned out to be complete and utter bastards. Are they, though? Well, okay, so the story is that uh, President Trump has put some sanctions on Venezuela. I can see this going well. (laughs) Yeah, various political reasons that we don't have to get into. And Adobe took that as a green light to cancel all Venezuelans' subscriptions to Adobe Cloud and stuff uh, and refused to refund them at first, but then backtracked on that later in the week. And it really just shows the dangers of software as a service and not actually owning a proper copy of the software you're using. Yeah, I think that that's the real story here, um, is that not owning your software, not having a physical copy or you know even a digital copy available to install and then it being controlled by a third party means that you're at risk of political changes of, um, you know, if the company goes bust, for example, you lose access to to your software. And I think that this positions the Linux desktop in a really great place for people who want to, you know, own their software um, and to make sure that they've got that guarantee that if they want to run this software, then it's there available for them to run. Yeah, or not necessarily even the Linux desktop, but at least free software. Things like GNU Imp, or is it GIMP, or is it Glimpse, or whatever. You know, if you've got an installer file for that, you can install it offline on a Mac or on Windows, whatever, and use it forever. Hopefully it's going to help open source this kind of thing and also make other people think twice about getting into these kind of contracts with Adobe. I mean, we used to use Adobe's software as a service, um, back with Linux Voice because it was the only option. It was the cheapest option for the four of us to work on it. Um, and you kind of, they've cancelled that, you know, they're, they're standalone products. They're obviously moving their entire business model behind these subscription services. And while Adobe will obviously see their bottom lines go up by people being caught into the subscription, it's nice to see that it, people are going to have to think twice and also, an influx of hopefully investment like we've seen in Blender with place, things like Scribus and Inkscape. I think you're all amazingly optimistic. I think it's just going to be more pirated versions of older versions <laughs> of uh, Photoshop that are going to be taking their place. But uh, I could always dream, I guess. Yeah, but it can happen. I mean, Lightroom was like well ahead of the curve for so long. And now we've got Dark table and raw therapy, the whole host of open source software that really is better and more flexible. And also you invest your time in learning how to use these tools. You're not going to be betrayed when, you know, the vendor moves on to something else or is unable to offer it to you. The real problem here, though, is if you have so much data in the cloud and then they say, oh, right in 24 hours, we're cutting you off. It's not like you can generally download all of that data. And if you're using something like a Chromebook, you know, let's get the digs in onto those things too while we're at it. You're not going to have many places to store it if you're like a normal person who doesn't have a NAS at home or something like that. So, yeah, it's a dangerous yeah. kind of situation people might find themselves in. I think the real problem is that there isn't anything to quite compete with those Adobe products. I mean, GIMP isn't quite Photoshop. Um, Inkscape, you know, isn't Illustrator, although it's getting much better. And Scribus isn't InDesign. 
And I'd just love to see those tools improve. I would really love to. I'd be happy to help, you know. I think it's got Krita, though, hasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, actually, Krita's brilliant. But but also more more Illustrator-like. Yeah, but, it, it, yeah, I don't know. Artists, I don't know how they'd find it. I mean, for example, we tried for ages to get Stacy on the next voice to use um, Inkscape and Scribus. And we wrote about it at the time. But for her, it was more about her career as well. Out. She saw herself as kind of being unemployable if she let her skills in Adobe mm. products slip. And, you know, of course we understood that. Yeah, and she saw the writing on the wall early, didn't she? <laughs> <laughs> oh. yeah, maybe, maybe. It was, it was a high-risk thing, but... <laughs> Well, that's interesting because that was a similar argument to way back when, when I was doing IT support, that people wouldn't switch their servers to Linux because they would say, um, well, yeah, you leave and you go and get a new job and then who's going to support our Linux servers? Nobody knows how to do it. Whereas, yeah, you run Windows, you run Photoshop, whatever, then, uh, you know, you can get plenty of other people that know those, uh, those products and have those skills. So how do we address that? Perhaps that's a story for another day. Well, that is a huge problem in all creative jobs that you have to know the industry standard tools. And if you're freelance, maybe you can get away with using free software alternatives or whatever. But if you want to work as part of a team where you're sharing things back and forth, you just can't really do that. You need to be using whatever the, the big commercial software is. You know, the studios are not going to be editing their videos on um you know, Caden Live or whatever, are they? They're using Avid and stuff. But you just have to build a better tool and, you know, with a bit of persistence and getting people young enough where they don't care at the time. Like, look, that's how Linux succeeded in the fact that you don't have to tell young people about Linux much these days and everybody kind of knows what it is. Whereas before the case, it was always that sort of sideways look of, uh-huh, okay, whatever, and then leave you in the, the comms room, you know, whereas now it's it's almost stupid not to use it in places. So Well, yeah, and open source software generally, like OBS Studio, for example, I think it's called OBS Studio, the thing that all the Twitch streamers use and all the wannabe Twitch streamers use, they probably use it because it's free as in beer, but they are nevertheless using open source software just as a default. I think there's a point where proprietary software reaches the limit of what it can do, and then they're still trying to eke out the same amount of money out of people, and people generally then at that point start to look around for something else, if there's something good to take its place. Yeah, and in the case of IBS, you do have something that is really solid, whereas with video editors and um, you know the publishing software that you talked about, Graham, it's maybe not quite as good. Yeah, I mean, I think this is the impetus that at least got me into Linux in the beginning. It was I was using Visual Studio back in like 1997, and to use it with the low cost version, you were restricted in what how you could share your projects, which seemed completely crazy. And I was prepared, like a lot of people, I think at the time, to accept the challenge of you know make files on Linux in return for being able to do exactly what I wanted with the code. And maybe we're seeing that the kind of beginnings of that, the beginnings of the trouble with software as a service and hosted data and what you can do with your software now in in kind of cloud services and what Adobe's doing. Maybe, but I think you're a bit of a dreamer. I think that... Oh, I am. (laughs) I I, I think that most normal people won't even have heard about this Venezuela situation and they'll just be going to work using Creative Cloud and just getting on with it. Yeah, you're right. (laughs) Oh, well. Sorry. (laughs) All right, well, let's talk about something more positive, and that is Ubuntu 19.10, which is coming out in a few days. So are you ready, Will? Nearly. 
still a few bugs to squash, but we're on the way there. Um, I think, well, we're finding new ones all the time, of course, but um, generally speaking, all the big blocks are in place. There's a few little uh, issues around the ZFS en route um, in, in the installer to fix, but they were being worked on today. I think we know how to fix all of those. Um, there's a few little paper cuts uh, that we've discovered. Pope has been very busy testing um, on on YouTube with, with the community, and that's provided quite a few little paper cut bugs for us to get fixed. Um, and then, you know, everything else is in place, so we should be good to go. I haven't actually tried out this ZFS on route yet. You say it's almost there. Is it going to be solid enough to use in production, or are you going to caveat it? Oh, it's, it's heavily caveated already. It is experimental. It is a, a non-LTS feature, which is there to prove itself in time for the, L, the the next LTS. But when I say it's nearly there, there are a few issues in the installer which we're working out. Everything else is done and landed and there to play with. So it's just a few sort of UI bugs, I suppose, that are being worked on at the moment. But no, don't don't play with it if you don't want to um, risk losing all your data. It is experimental. In really exciting news, Chromium is now a snap. Yeah, this is the first of all of the Debs in the entire system that are going to be a snap. So the whole whole thing's going to be a snap, right? That's how this is working. Oh no, it's just Chromium because it's a complete ball ache to actually make it work with all the dependencies and stuff. Yeah, I mean, you can't even build Chromium in 14.04 anymore because it uses compiler features which simply don't exist in that version. So yes, it is a massive pain in the backside. So does that mean that snap, this snap will work backwards to 14 or it's gone from 14 now? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I say you can't, but you can, but it's just a massive pain in the ass. But yes, it, it, the snap works fine. Um, okay. And that means that we build one version of Chromium across all those different versions and yeah, it quarters the, uh, the amount of effort that we have to put into it. So it's a huge time saver. And if we do our job right, then nobody will really notice the difference. Well, I look forward to trying out the final release of, well, a few of the flavors, but I suppose the main one ends Ubuntu mostly. But let's move on. Let's talk about ARM and RISC-V. Oh, here we go. RISC-V, Joe's favorite. <laughs> yeah, obviously. I didn't put this in, though. How much did you pay them to put it in, then? <laughs> <laughs> no, I put this one in. It's an interesting story that I read on Medium uh, by the excellently named Tony Peng. <laughs> who wrote an article about how um, ARM have responded to people um, asking what their views of of RISC-V are. Um, And it boils down to, well, in my opinion, a little bit of FUD on the part of ARM. Um, They're saying things like, well, does free really mean free? How do you go about testing all of this so-called um, free architectures and, and free CPUs that you've designed? How do you go about um, verifying that the designs all work properly? Um, they make a big play about the ARM ecosystem being very large, the ARM community being very large. And so, you know, if you go with RISC-V, then you're on your own kind of thing. Um, so I don't know, that sort of just smacks of, of the bad old days of Microsoft and, and FUD against Linux. Um, we, we will see. Um, and then to sort of counter people moving to RISC-V, they've come up with this idea which will allow you to put your own routines, your own code, your own um, instructions into the ARM CPU that you buy from from ARM, um, which raises the question, how do you then verify those new instructions? So it seems a bit <laughs> self-defeating to me. It does feel like they're on the back foot. They are the huge giant 
in this industry now. Even Intel are a bit worried. You can get bare metal AWS instances running ARM now. So they're top of the tree, I think. And always when you're at the top, you're in a vulnerable position. And Risk Five is here to potentially eat its lunch. And so they have to do something. And I think that they do have a point in that Risk Five, it's not just completely free, as in beer and freedom, because you've got the main instruction set, but then you have to have a lot of other stuff around that. And ARM is this very well-established ecosystem with all the software building for it, no problem, and just this off-the-shelf licensing model, whereas RISC-V is more of a risk, ha-ha-ha, for companies to get into. I think ultimately they're going to be way better off going down that route, but I don't know, maybe I'm just playing devil's advocate here, but I do see the point that ARM are making. But the reality is I don't think we're going to see RISC-V smartphones anytime soon and tablets and IoT devices. Well, maybe some of the lower-powered IoT devices. I think it far more likely that it's, you know, disk controllers and, you know, SSD firmware chips and stuff like that in washing machines and anywhere you need, like, really low-power, very specific hardware. I, th- I think that ARM's going to be all right for a while. Okay, this episode is sponsored by DigitalOcean. Go to do.co slash LNL and you can get $50 credit with 30 days to use it. DigitalOcean offers VMs or droplets, as they call them, in data centers all over the world with really fast network and really fast SSDs. And you can choose from one of the distros that they offer, like Ubuntu, Fedora, Debian, and CentOS, or FreeBSD, or you can use your own custom image. And you can take those distros and build them up exactly how you want. Remember, you've got complete root access to these. Or you can go for one of their OneClick apps, like LAMP and LEMP stacks and WordPress, Discourse, GitLab. And these droplets start from as little as $5 a month, and they scale all the way up to huge amounts of RAM and huge numbers of CPU cores, so you can deploy exactly how much you need for the application that you're using. If you need more storage, they've got block storage and object storage, which is really easy to attach to your droplet and just get going straight away. They have cloud firewalls, so you can block network traffic before it even gets to your VM. Amazing backups and a great Teams feature that allows multiple people to work on one droplet without having to share passwords. So go to do.co slash LNL, get your $50 credit, and get started. That's do.co slash LNL. All right, what's this link that someone's put in the doc? What's going on with what free words? Okay, so this was me. So this is... Apparently, though I'm not on it, on Facebook, all the rage is this thing called What Three Words, which is it's a website, but it's a geocoding algorithm that basically you can pinpoint any location on the planet with three words. Um, and the, the What Three Words part is the algorithm. Um, it's a now it's a really good idea. I think we can all understand immediately how it's done. You know, it's basically hashing with a bit of editing and intelligence into the words used. But what three words it's got there's two sides of it. There's a kind of huge humanitarian side to it, um, in that it's a great way of locating where you are when you're in danger in a war zone or in any kind of crisis situation. And in fact, OpenStreetMap, lots of contributors started putting what three words location information, the three words that represented a specific location onto the map data. But also what three words is a patented algorithm. And, and in fact, what's come out is what free words, which was maybe a little bit unwisely a reverse engineering of the 
algorithm and a re-implementation in Python and then hosted on um, what three words. And I think pre- it produced the same word, three word location output for the lo- for the end result for say, you know, the Parthenon in Athens or wherever it happens to be or McDonald's down the road. Um, and they were immediately taken down. Um, lots of DMCA takedown notices for their various sites or where they moved to. The code has disappeared. Um, and basically, what Three Words has become very aggressive in protecting what it's, is its IP and shows a very strong desire, I think, to keep it locked and patented in the future because they're going to own those Three Word locations. They're going to be able to do great deals on Coca-Cola and all that kind of stuff. And so it's a missed opportunity, perhaps, in 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 the greater good in having a, a great way of geolocating each other with three words um and maybe a comment on open source and re-implementation and i don't know so that's the new story in a long nutshell i mean what's wrong with lat longs i mean i just don't understand that <laughs> <laughs> okay so they use the dmca which is the digital millennium copyright act uh how is copyright protecting a mat's uh, function of essentially, yeah. I think probably the naming of the, the what free words probably for that sense, but I think they got a load of other. So the people that did the what free words are anonymous, so they're only, I mean, they're protecting their jobs and their livelihoods, probably. Um, but for me, it's really disappointing. It's a really, it's a cool idea, it's a cool idea and a technology we can all understand. And it's, I hope it doesn't get subverted into you know owned basically in the way that facebook owns now community and school information and dissemination of data it was pretty fucking stupid to call it what free words though like they could have called it anything yeah and they just attracted attention by calling it something so close to what three words yeah and i think reverse engineering the actual algorithm as well was pretty unwise i think they should have done it in complete separation and just come up with an open source implementation of the same idea I've been playing with this on what3words.com and it is fascinating. Like it breaks it down the whole world into these tiny squares and each one has got a unique set of three words. I don't understand how that works. You did briefly say it's like hashing and stuff, but that's a bit beyond my simple brain, I think. Well, if you just imagine the, I mean, latitude and longitude, the, the people always give those huge numbers for latitude and longitude. In fact, you only need like two digits past the decimal point, I think, to give yourself a very fine-tuned location. So the numbers aren't very big. And then if you just think of how you'd create a hash of those two numbers and then turn that hash into three different words. I haven't actually looked at the algorithm to see how it works. That's how I'm totally imagining it works. Is that because you've got your own clean clean room implementation that you're rolling out next week? Those hashes just represent a number that you have in a dictionary and then you can fine-tune the dictionary probably so that there's some kind of... Where you can paste in a specific name maybe like like the galaxies were generated this way in elite back in the day on 8-bit computers um they still were able to insert system names that weren't part of the random generation and they still do well how can i possibly hope to understand computing stuff that's explained by the mind that brought us k album (laughs) (laughs) right on commander K K album was brilliant it was simple design it it was came out before iphoto and Apple ripped me off. Where is the 
the uh, Frameworks 5 and soon to be Frameworks 6 port of it, though? That's the question. Funnily enough, the thing that got me was trying to work with the Digicam team um, on arranging the same metadata that we could use to share across applications. And to this day, I know that the DSIM data in camera stuff doesn't agree on the rotation of a photo and how it should be described. And that's the exact same problem I had in 2003. <laughs> I think I have a few photos like that. <laughs> <laughs> You just horribly blew my mind, man. I've always said it as DCIM. Maybe it is. I mean, I get it all wrong. I See, I, li- I live in complete isolation up here in the attic in the middle of the countryside. <laughs> <laughs> right, let's have a bit of KDE corner then. And please rattle through it, Phelan. I, I know you're all missing it. <laughs> um, okay, so first up is high DPI. And I don't have any high DPI screens, so I don't care. But I can see the grief and anguish and gnashing of teeth that a lot of people seem to have and it's all down to fractional scaling again like usual i thought they had that sorted years ago kind of but then other stuff broke it and you start to get broken fracturing of things because internally to the applications not just on plasma itself it's using uh, integer uh, scaling, which means that if you have a colossal monitor with a super high res and you need to set it to say 20% bigger so you can actually see stuff, that 1.2 turns out to actually be a right nightmare to work with. Whereas if it was a 116th or 132th fraction, it would actually work better. So things like 1.25 work better. So they're trying to iron all this out and they're working really hard on it. So that's part of their next, um, three categories for, uh, the next sort of two years that they were doing it's their kind of project goals for the next couple of years so they're working hard on that i must say that one thirty tooth is definitely my favorite fraction it is yes i haven't a fucking clue i'm terrible at maths so uh yeah i'm just not allowed near things like that fucking 1080p is good enough for me and it should be good enough for everyone else too no 1440p come on get with the times granddad 27 inches 1440p xfce jobs are good in fucking black wallpaper and next up is the plasma mobile uh, work is going on and there's a cool thing plasma nano shell that came out academy by bushan and marco um and that is pretty cool there's a new app launcher involved in that Shell actions like uh, swiping apps in left, right, uh, left hand sidebar, pop in stuff, you know, uh, Kirigami, the framework that's used to build those, had to build a couple of extra APIs to get that to work. Um, cause you know, obviously in a mobile app, you don't have really like a big long scroll that goes on forever. You want kind of things to be a bit more gesture based. And that is there for that as well. And they've integrated a whole load of things for the, uh, K accounts stuff so things where they're getting to like you know if you got gmail account or chat or all that sort of stuff they're trying to integrate that all together to a nice api and they have a whole load of apps that they've been working on like peruse the comic book app angelfish's new browser the file browser has got all the chaos slaves going for it i know people whinge about oh if you use kd chaos slaves well they're actually really fucking good so they should just shut up um <laughs> and uh you've got a couple of notes apps that are coming out nota and buho and a whole lot of authentication scuff for the uh, one-time passwords and things like that which is obviously very important when you're out on your phone and to go along with the extra work that's involved for the next couple of years, uh, apps was a big thing that they were working on too. So there's a tons of bug fixes that are coming in in the next batch of app releases that are coming out. Uh, well, actually, some of them came out already, um, and we're seeing a lot of that stuff come through. 
And uh, yeah, obviously then there's all the app-based high DPI fixes that are coming in as well. And um, yeah, so Amarok has also died because they're starting to deprecate the Plasma 4-based library stuff. So it's a very sad day when I had to stop my music player. Um, thankfully, it is being worked on for uh, version 5, but uh, just not yet. So I've moved over to Eliza, which is actually pretty good. All right, well, quickly, the Linux App Summit schedule is out. So uh, I know the KDE types are pretty heavily involved in that, so that's pretty good. Uh, and what, what are these last two, then? Uh, and the last one is uh, Plasma Rendering. That was more kind of related to the other one as well. Uh, but people who've got an NVIDIA graphics card might have seen this a few times where it looks like kind of colorized TV snow on the text of your icons. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I've seen that. Yeah, so they have been working really hard on that for about a year. Um, and they have an optional thing, optional for the developer that has to include the change in the API to fix the application. So they, they haven't forced it because there might be some sort of differences in thing. But... Um, for anybody developing an app or anybody who's seen this, yeah, this this seems to be a binary blob like driver sort of tie-in, and uh, essentially it just says buy AMD, and uh, you won't have any of these issues. So, uh, <laughs> and uh, last is uh, Framework Six uh, QT Six is planned for November twenty twenty, so uh, start working on it now. On to a bit of admin then, and first of all, thank you everyone for supporting us on PayPal and Patreon. Very much appreciated. You can find out more about that at latenightlinux.com slash support. And remember, $5 or more on Patreon gets you an ad-free feed. And you can go to latenightlinux.com slash contact if you want to get in touch with us. And a final plug for OggCamp, which is coming up at the end of this week. And I will be hosting a panel there uh, with various people, and we need some questions for that. So I'll put a link in the show notes. Do ask us random questions, whether it's about Linux or free culture or just anything you like, really. What's your favorite color, maybe? But yeah, I'll put a link in the show notes. That is ogcamp.org slash panel. So yeah, go there and give us some questions. And if you're going, I will see you there. Graham, I should do a drum roll. Did you finally sort it out? Are you coming or are you staying at home? Oh, you'd have to wait and see on Saturday. Uh, <laughs> Friday night, hopefully. But uh, Yeah, um, I'll be drinking in the bar on Friday night, all being well. The plan is to get up there in the afternoon. And, uh, yeah, so see you in the pub, everyone. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Entroware. Go to entroware.com, and they are a Linux-based computer seller based here in the UK. And they ship computers with Ubuntu and Ubuntu Mate 18.04 and 18.10. And they've got a huge range of laptops, from affordable ones that are good for browsing and email and office tasks, all the way up to huge powerhouses with even desktop components in them that you can do gaming, graphic design, 3D art, video editing, machine learning, all sorts. They've also got some desktops and servers, and almost everything's configurable, so you can tweak it to be exactly what you want. And if you can't find something that's exactly right for your needs, then do get in contact with them, and they can sort you out a custom order. They're very approachable and great at communicating. They ship to the UK, Republic of Ireland, France, Germany, Italy, and Spain. And if you do buy one of the machines, then at checkout, there's a little drop-down. You can select late-night Linux, and they'll know that we sent you to them. So go to entroware.com for all your Linux computing needs. Right, so we've got an interview with Campbell Barton now. Now, it turns out that you lot were all either ill or dealing with your kids' bullshit, so it was just me talking to him. You're not taking my man flu seriously. is putting my life in danger. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. 
So Campbell has been a developer at Blender for a long time. He's one of the senior devs there. And uh, he, I don't think he's been on this show. He was on uh, Linux Luddites back in the day. Um, but anyway, yes, let's hear that now. So welcome to the show, Campbell. Hi, Joe. How are you going? Yeah, good, good. So how are things going with Blender generally then? Oh, very well. Um, well, we've just done a 2.80 release, which has been very well received. Um, I guess we're working on the next release, 2.81. And um, yeah, just doing a lot of bug fixing and some of the features didn't get into the to the big sort of big 2.80 release. So yeah, finishing off those. Yeah, that 2.8 release was pretty huge, wasn't it? It was uh, the first release for quite a long time. Yeah, we had done a few 2.8 up to 2.79 but yeah it was over four years of development and some pretty significant changes what are the standout changes i know there are many but what stood out for you i mean one of the big changes was just usability and uh, the user interface moving to tools uh, sort of previously we had like a keyboard dominant input which was fine for experienced users who could remember the whole key map in their head but for for sort of casual users who just want to open something up and get started it wasn't really very good. So we moved to supporting a dominant tool. Like, so, you know, like most graphics applications, you'll click on a tool and use it. But also things like a real-time rendering engine called Eevee. So that uses like the graphics card to do rendering similar to like how most computer games work. Um, unlike Cycles, which we still have and is still a good rendering engine, that, um, that can use the graphics card, but that runs on the GPU. So it does ray tracing on the GPU, whereas EV sort of just renders using the graphics card's uh, rendering functionality. Um, I guess, yeah, quite a few other things. Um, Grease Pencil is like a animation system, so you can do like 2D animation, but in 3D, if that makes sense. So you can do sort of drawing and animate the drawing, but have a 3D, uh, work in 3D as well with 3D cameras and stuff. Um, rewritten Viewport because that was getting a bit slow using old OpenGL sort of graphics commands, moved to more modern OpenGL, um, and uh, rewritten uh, layers uh, or collection system. So you said that it's better for casual users. Does such a thing exist? Are there any casual users of Blender? Because any time I've ever installed it, I've opened it up and just gone, uh, I don't know what to do with this, and just closed it. Yeah, well, no, they do exist, because you might have, for example, um, an illustrator who's you know, maybe making the cover of a book and they just want to get some basic elements in perspective. So they'll do fairly basic modeling work and then just freehand draw over that as a template, things like this. So you might open up Blender and use it for a day or something, but not be, you know, using it as a part of your job every day. So the Blender team has grown significantly since we last spoke on air. That was quite a long time ago, to be fair, but um, it's now a, a pretty major project, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's, well... I think we're 15 people now, maybe more. Um, yeah, so we're sort of having to deal with being a bigger project and sort of some growing pains and some challenges. You know, you start to need management once, once you get a bit bigger and you can't just communicate with every other person on the team. You sort of have to be sort of aware of what you're doing and what other people are doing in the same area, but otherwise you're not necessarily working directly with, it, with the other developers. And so they're all full-time developers then mostly i think yeah we have some part-timers but yeah yeah mostly full-time wow and presumably that has been helped by the money that you got this year because in july two big things happened you got some money from epic and also from ubisoft yeah yeah um 
So yeah, we're going to spend that, well, we're going to use that over, I think it's three years, but it wouldn't really work well just to hire a bunch of developers and then fire them after the year ends or something. It's not really a sustainable model and people I don't think would appreciate it. So we're using that to increase the team size, but yeah, over over a longer period of time. And so the money from Epic, was that a one-off then? Yes, it is a one-off, yep. Right, whereas from Ubisoft, that they joined Blender um, as a gold member. Right, yeah, and we've got other sort of bigger sponsors too. So that's, I guess that sort of works a bit better for us because we can rely on the continued donations. And so were there any strings attached to that money then? Not really. There were some things they were interested in us doing, like um, supporting uh, USD, which is Universal Scene Descriptor um, from Pixar, but otherwise, not really. And I think, well, Ton, uh, who manages a lot of this stuff, is pretty keen on staying independent. Um, so when we do get donations, we pretty much make sure there's no strings attached. Although if they have interests that align with our interests, we you know try and get a developer to work on it too. Okay, because that, that was my concern, that maybe they would kind of drip feed the money based on certain features or certain outcomes that they'd want. But they've allowed you to maintain your autonomy then, which is good. Yeah, I was surprised. Um, I don't really use Twitter well, at all, but I looked at the Twitter comments and a lot of people were sort of worried that Blender was going to get taken over by Epic or something. So uh, nothing could be further from the truth, basically. I don't know if I can allay those fears. And what was their motivation for giving you all that money then, do you think? Well, we've had sort of donations from similar companies in the past, like Valve gave some pretty significant donations and maybe still does. I suspect the interest is that it's good for independent game developers to have um, software to make content. And we're one of the only, um, well, pretty much the only open source project to, to support that. Well, yeah, and you're the only free as in beer serious player in this market, right? There's some very expensive 3D applications. And then there's Blender, which is free in both senses and open source. But other than that, there's not really any competition, is there? No, no, not really. I must say, I wouldn't mind if there were, if we did have some competition though. You know, you get people using using Blender for things it's not really meant for and then they don't always have a good time and they complain about things, that, you know, if they're trying to use it for CAD or for, for other things. And have you still got the video editor then? <laughs> yeah, and uh, it's getting more work on it as well, so... Hmm. <laughs> you don't seem that keen on it then. Oh, it's just it it probably needs a rewrite. The code's a bit um legacy code, but I tried like some alternatives um and they weren't as efficient. I was a bit disappointed some of the other video editors on Linux, although I think KDE and Live is is it KDN Live? Is is not bad. Yeah, K KDN Live or KDN Live, yeah. I've heard good things about that. I've used it briefly. But being on a GTK desktop, it doesn't sort of integrate that well. So I tend to use OpenShot. But I've heard very good things about the Blender video editor. Yeah, yeah, I've done a little bit of work on it. Um, we have a new maintainer for the video editor, and he's um, getting involved, and he's been hired to do some work, so that's good. Um, so I guess after a while, when it's you know better maintained and more stable, it will it'll be nice. And is the plan to integrate it heavily into the other features that Blender has? Yeah, well, it's already reasonably integrated. Um, one of the advantages of it is that um, it supports sort of the 3D viewport. So for example, if with the real-time rendering engine, which uses the graphics card, you can um, send that directly into the video editor. So you don't need to render out you know, a video file and then put it back in. So you can actually edit 
the three D animation without touching the hard disk, basically, which is kind of nice. Two point eight point one is coming up in November, so that's fairly soon. Um, is that going to be a fairly big release as well? Then not so much. More just continued development, bug fixes and stuff. I mean, there'll there'll be big features in it, but um, yeah, not not nowhere near as big as two point eighty. Yeah, we're going to try for two to three month. Um, I think it's two to three months release cycle. Might stretch out to four, but yeah, we'll see. All right. So kind of once a quarter-ish. Yep. That seems reasonable, yeah. So Phelim asked me to ask you, um, is Python still the big kind of language for automation in Blender, or are you using any other languages these days? No, we're sticking with Python. Um, We track the latest Python 3 releases. Um, We bundle Python completely. Um, And yeah, it's used for all the add-ons. And um, yeah, we're continuing to use it. So we actually met up in the pub. It must be several months ago now. This is when Google Stadia was just announced. And I'd kind of asked you at the time, is that likely to help Blender out? Because all the games are going to be running on Linux servers and streamed to TVs or whatever. And so therefore you would assume that 3D stuff would be being improved by all the money that Google throws at it. So um, you said that like it might help at some point, but where are we with that? Do you, do you think that it is likely to be any help to Blender? Well, generally speaking, all work on drivers and just supporting the hard 3D hardware is, is great for Blender. Um, the reason it's not maybe doesn't directly help is I think we'll need to move to Vulkan before um, we're using exactly this, well, something very close to what Google Stadia would use because we're currently on OpenGL. But there is work moving to Vulkan, so it may help out in the future. When's that likely to happen, do you think, the move to Vulkan? Ooh, I can't say. Uh, it's it's a sort of a medium to long-term project. Maybe version 3.0? Yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, there's a developer working on it and he's got like... Well, last one I saw him, he had a blank a blank window opening up with Vulcan. So we're at the sort of early stages. Yeah, but it's not the time to make any promises by the sounds of it. Right, yeah. <laughs> oh, well, fingers crossed on that. So is there anything else you want to mention? I just thought I'd maybe mention some of the people that are using Blender nowadays. Um, uh, some of your listeners might have seen the Evan- Evangelion animation um, movies. They're, they're going to be using Blender for the 2020 movie that's coming up. Um and we've had some use some on on Netflix with uh, the next gen, like a kids animation, and um, Man in the High Castle, uh, Amazon TV series, uh, is using Blender too. So yeah, there's been, um, I guess those are some examples if people are interested. And just our plans for sort of for the future, because, you know, being a bit bigger and having extra funding and stuff, you know, you might think we're adding lots of new features and stuff, but we're pretty much just trying to improve quality, um, work on polishing and bug fixing and sort of better maintaining some of the areas that have been added. Yeah, as it becomes more of a professional tool, it needs to be more professional, right? So you need to not just throw loads of features at it. You need to polish the features you already have. Yeah, and also it's also just like making them integrate well with each other and, um, you know, getting feedback from artists, finding the pain points and then iterating on that as well is really important. Um, we do have a plan to work on animation too, specifically um, in 2020, spend extra time working on the animation system and making it better. All right. So if people want to find out more about Blender, then where do they go? Well, I guess blender.org um, is sort of the, the landing page for, for everything. If you're interested in Blender news, there's a website called Blender Nation, and that's just a um, fairly frequently updated page of things that are going on with Blender. 
And if people like to just um, talk to people involved with Blender, including the developers, but also users, and ask questions, we have Blender.chat, and that's a rocket, a rocket server. All right, cool. Well, I'll put some links in the show notes. Thanks a lot for coming on again, and we'll have to catch up again soon. Okay, yeah, thanks. It's been a pleasure. I think that was a really cool interview. And one thing that he didn't mention, because I think you guys recorded just before this was announced, was the fact that NVIDIA just became a sponsor as well. Yeah, he did mention that they've got a few different sponsors, um, but it is cool to see NVIDIA getting involved with the other companies as well, pushing Blender forward. And I like the fact that one of my favorite shows, The uh, Man in the High Castle, is developed on Blender, which is cool. Yeah, it is really professional-grade software, it seems. And that's where we were talking about earlier, about you have to build something that's better and then use proper, and, well, Blender seems to have managed to do that, so it's pretty damn cool. Yeah, I mean, all the competitors to Blender are really expensive, so, you know, trying to get started in this kind of business is almost impossible, you know, unless you're wealthy, and so Blender is so crucial. It's remarkable to hear all of the things that have gone into 2.A come together, actually. It was a really great thing. It made me look again at the GUI and what they've done and the multi-selections and the EV rendering engine in, in real time on your hardware is incredible. Amazing for free software. You may as well be talking about synths, Graham, because uh, <laughs> it's all lost on me, I'm afraid. So you could always use cycles, which is, um, so when you actually render the scene, um, cycles is the kind of algorithm that does all the number crunching in the background to create the photorealistic output. But now you can basically do the whole thing in real time on your GPU um, and really get 90% of the same kind of output that you get with cycles. It's the way Unity 3D works. It's the way lots of really pro-level software works. Um, you don't even have to render it if you, you know, you're just happy creating some kind of interactive movie and you want to play around with live elements. It's, it's really good. It's crazy because I remember people saying, oh, we'll never have things like uh, Toy Story that are rendered in real time because that would be impossible. And yet, there you go. I know. I I had Vista Pro 3 on the Amiga and it used to take like four hours to render a scene with a few trees and a mountain in it. And now, you know, Skyrim did that like 15 years ago. Well, thanks again to Campbell for coming on. I know he listens, so you'll probably hear this. So yeah, thanks, man. But we better get out of here then. We'll be back in a couple of weeks. I've been Joe. I've been Phelan. I've been Graham. And I've been Will. See you later.